Okay, we'll try it again. If you have your Bible, please open it to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 20. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Back in 2013, Alabama's head football coach, uh, Nick Saban, appeared on uh, 60 Minutes. And during this interview, he gave some insight into his approach to coaching. And he called his uh, coaching approach the process. The process. He says, you have to ignore the scoreboard. Don't worry about winning. Just focus on doing your job. That's part of the process. And at the Village Church, we too have a process as well. It's not a process to coaching, but it's a process to what we call church membership. First, you take the inner the village class. Second, you meet with the elders and you share your uh, testimony with them of how you've come to seven faith in Jesus. And third, you make a, a public profession of faith before the congregation. And you do that by taking five membership vows, five membership vows. You are sent to these five promises and, and declarations. You actually enter into a covenant with, with God and with his church when you take these membership vows. Now, one of these vows, one of these declaration states, asks the question, do you promise to support the church in this worship and work to the best of your ability? Do you promise to support the church in its work and worship to the best of your ability? Now, I've asked every member of this church that question and, and all and the other questions as well. I've been asking through these five questions since 2010. And in all this time, I have yet to receive a paper that lists out conditions before you would fulfill those vows. I haven't got an email. I haven't gotten an email that says, unless condition A is meant, I'm not going to fulfill the vows that I took before the congregation. Now, I asked those vows, and, and you all were standing right there. And I was here when you said, yes, and I do. And so what happens in church is usually what happens in marriage when the honeymoon phase wears off. We all know what happens in marriage when the honeymoon phase wears off. The conditions come. The conditions you didn't say when you were at the altar. You took all those marriage vows without saying, I'll do them if my spouse do them. No, you didn't say that. You said, I promise to do these regardless of if my spouse does it or not. But when your honeymoon phase wears off, oh, the conditions come. The if-then statements come. And the same thing happens in the church. When the honeymoon phase wears off, our if-then statements come. Our conditional statements come. If A happens in the church, then I will support the church in its worship and work to the best of my ability. So if you're a member of the village church, what is your if-then statement when it comes to our church? What conditions must be met before we all will support our church and her worship and work to the best of our ability? You see, we've been doing this Magna Carta series all this month. And this Magna Carta series is meant to give you some insight into how each of us can support our church and her worship and work to the best of our ability. I've talked about the Holy Spirit, that we need him 
I've encouraged um, each of us to commit to one Sunday per month when we would come to the press service. I challenged us last week to, to be a community of love, not a community of robbery. We can support our church by coming to Sunday worship and joining a small group and, and, and also serving. For example, the soundboard. We need more folks on the soundboard. And so, if, <laughs> thank you for my amen corner. And so, if you have a desire to be on the soundboard, Travis Williams will meet you in the back after, after service today. Thank you. Another amen corner. And so, those are other ways. Our Sunday equipment classes start September the 11th for all ages, and you heard about those during our announcements. All four of those are part of our Magna Carta, part of the ways in which we do church here at the village. And we can also, we cannot forget about tithes and offerings. Now, we don't pass the plate around, and we do that by intent, but the giving of our tithes and offerings is also part of our Magna Carta. It's also even an act of worship to God. And all of us, pastors, elders, deacons included, should be intentional and proactive with our giving. It's not a payoff, not a payoff to God, not a payoff to the pastor. It's an act of worship to the God that we serve. And finally, this morning, we're going to discuss the last item in our Magna Carta, another way that we can support our church and her work and worship. It's what I call the mission that outlives us, the mission that outlives us. It's the Great Commission. And so if you have your Bible, open it to Matthew 28. Beginning in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word, not Alex's word. Let us pray. Father, as we come to the preaching of your truth, we desperately need your Holy Spirit. We need him to descend upon this place. We need him to descend and, and encourage each of us. You know where we are today. Oh, young, you know where we are. You know what we're dealing with. You know our struggles. You know our realities. You know the worlds in which we live in the places in which we're going to go when we leave here today. We all look good today, but now our lives are not perfect. We all got mess. We all have something in our life that ain't right. And you know what it is, Spirit. And we need you to minister to that today. It's easy to come here with a smile and pretend like everything's good. But everything ain't always good. We don't have it all together. We need Jesus. We don't need less of him. We need more of him. So, Holy Spirit, you are our counselor. You are the one who leads us into all truth. And I pray that you would do that today. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew 28 uh, begins with Mary Magdalene and the other Mary heading to Jesus' tomb. They want to see him because he was just crucified. And so when they finally arrive at the tomb, they, they notice some stranger things. They notice some stranger things. The two ladies see that the stone that was in front of the tomb has been moved back. It's not there anymore. They also notice someone sitting on that stone. It's not an individual. It's not a Roman soldier. In fact, this individual isn't even human. It's an angel of the Lord 
sitting on the stone that was in front of Jesus' tomb. And the angel says to Mary, Mary, don't be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he has gone before you to Galilee. There you will see him. And so Mary, Mary, they shake off their shackles and they take off. Take off running from the tomb, heading to the disciples. They're filled with great joy and fear at the same time. Two different emotions, fear and joy at the same time. So they're running and running and running. And out of nowhere, Jesus jumps out and says, hey, what's up, Mary, Mary? Greetings, Mary, Mary. It is I. And so they come up to Jesus. They fall down before Jesus. They take hold of his feet and they begin to worship him. And Jesus tells them the same thing the angel tells them. Don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. So Mary, Mary delivers the good news to the disciples. and They tell them that, that Jesus wants to see you in Galilee. And so they go. That's what verse 16 tells us. At 11, they head to the mountain to which Jesus has directed them. They're going to the mountain to see the resurrected Christ, the one who conquers the grave, the one who defeats death, the one who was crucified and dead and buried and rose again on the third day. That's who they're going to see on this mountain in Galilee. And when they finally arrive and when they finally see him, they see Jesus on the top of this mountain. But they don't rush the mountain. They don't storm the mountain and join him on the mountaintop. They don't, in, they don't encircle Jesus holding hands saying we shall all overcome. No. They don't dance the victory dance. They worship him when they see him. They fall to their knees with their faces to the ground. And they worship him. Now the text does say some doubt it. That could have been some of the apostles. That could have been some of the people that was with them. We doubt, I don't know who these doubters are. But nonetheless, regardless of who their doubts, they still come. They still come to him to see him on this mountain, to see the resurrected Christ. And what about you this morning? You're here, but why have you come here? Why have you come to this place? Have you come to worship? Have you come with doubts? Have you come with unbelief? Have you come with fears? Have you come to check a box? Have you come because that's what we do in the South? We go to church. Have you come with frustrations? Why have you come to this place today? Have you truly come to worship him? Or have you come just to check a box? Listen, before you can attempt anything for Jesus, you must first come to him first. The disciples have doubts here, but yet they still come. And so are you a disciple today? If you're not a disciple, then Jesus wants you to be a disciple. He says in Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Are you heavy laden? Are you tired? He says, come to me and I, and you will find rest. Do you want rest? Do you want rest? Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you want rest for your soul? Are you tired of the struggle? Are you tired of what you're currently dealing with? 
And Christ says, come to me, take my yoke. It's easy, my burden is light. Come to me and you will find rest. The invitation for you to come to Jesus is open to you. And his invitation for you is to have all your sins forgiven. That's the invitation. For he paid the price for them on the cross. And he wants you to come to him and stay in faith. Remember, they're coming to the resurrected Jesus. The one who conquered the grave. The one who defeated death. And you can come to this Jesus as well. To trust him as your savior. Surrender to him as your Lord. But will you come? But will you come? And when you do come to him in faith, surrender to him and trust him, you become a disciple. Just like the 11 here in verse 20, in, in chapter 28 of Matthew, are his disciples. Because they come, they worship him, the resurrected Christ on this mountain. Even though some of them may have doubts. And guess what happens next? As they are worshiping Jesus, as some of them are doubting him, eventually Jesus sees them. He doesn't come to them and chew them out because some of them are doubting. No. He comes to the worshipers. He comes to the doubters. He comes to them and he speaks to them. That's what verse 18 tells us. The resurrected Christ is getting ready to put something in place. He comes and speaks to them about a process. A disciple-making process. He's going to commission those 11 disciples to begin this process, to begin a mission of making disciples in his name, to begin a mission that will outlive all of them. The Great Commission. Do you think Christianity has survived this long because of sinful people? Do you think the church has survived this long because of people? Because of us? It's because of Jesus. Because of his spirit. He uses broken people to fulfill his mission, but he doesn't need us. But he uses. He doesn't need us, but he uses us. You see, there's a reason the mission outlives us. There's a reason the mission doesn't die when we die. Because all of us are going to eventually go to the grave. None of us are going to live forever. Though I wish I could, but I'm not. It's because the mission doesn't belong to us. The mission belongs to Jesus. He makes this clear to the eleven before he commissions them to go out. See, he's coming to meet with the disciples, and he's going to let them know there's something you must understand before you go out. So he comes to them and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You know what Jesus is here? He is straight up G, man. He's a boss. He's a straight-up G. He doesn't say, hey. doesn't say, how you doing? First thing he says to them is, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He didn't ask for their inputs. He didn't ask for suggestions. He didn't ask for commentary. And he didn't ask for their opinions. Because the first order of business to establish here is to establish who's in charge of this ship. Who's the king of this castle? Who is the boss? And that is Jesus. He is Lord. He is king. He is the boss. He's in charge. Not us and not the eleven. The eleven must understand that their future leadership and authority in the church when it comes to the Great Commission will always be under Jesus' authority. They operate under him, not as his equals, 
Now that's his equals. Think about the most famous preacher you know, the most famous evangelist that you know right now. If Christ descended today, that preacher would bow down, not take a seat beside him. Please know that. He bows down before the king, and that's Jesus. That's what Jesus is trying to establish here. I'm the one in control. I have all the authority. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the quote that says, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. This is true for all people, but not Jesus. But not Jesus. We can't reduce Jesus so far down to our level that we forget that he's also God. That he's other than us. He has something that we don't have. And that he's God. And he's not like us when it comes to certain things. All authority in heaven has been given to me. He has absolute power, but yet he's not corrupted by it. When he says all authority, he means all authority belongs to me. And here's the thing. He doesn't have to campaign for his power. He doesn't have to run for office for his power. He doesn't have to go to Fox News or CNN and try to get people to vote for him for his power. His power was given to him by the Father before all eternity. He says in Matthew 11, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Who is he talking about? God the Father. His authority is given to him by God the Father. And so with all this authority, with all this power in his hands, he commissions his disciples for the Great Commission, for the mission that outlives them. In verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. There's only one command in those two verses. Do you know what it is? There's only one command. And the command in those two verses is to make disciples. That's the command. That's the mission. That's the great commission. But is that what we are about here at the village? Is that what we are about when we're outside these walls. I think sometimes churches and and even our church can can drift away from making disciples of all nations. And it's easy to lose focus. It is. It's easy to focus on making church members, tithers, worker bees, greeters, making bigger buildings and bigger programs. The list goes on and on and on. We, We can get so consumed with self-preservation, that we lose sight of what the church's mission truly is. My friend, Dr. Carl Ellis, he's preached here before, he did a conference in 2001 in, in, in Philadelphia, and he said that the basic thought in, in the lecture is that God makes converts, we make disciples. That's the Great Commission. He goes on to say, too often we try to make converts and expect God to make disciples. With this reversal, We're not left with a great commission, but rather a great debacle. A great debacle. When we drift away from Jesus' true intentions in the commission, we're not commanded to make converts. We're not commanded to save people. 
We're not commanded to make people accept Jesus. We're not commanded to shame and guilt people to coming into the faith. We have one command in this verse. That's to make disciples. And there's a process of doing so. And we must trust the process. My daughter, Madison, wants to be a baker when she grows up. And Waikita and I, we're doing our best to, to help her reach that goal. So back in July, she decided she wants to you know, make a homemade cake to take to my sister's house for the 4th of July. And so I told her, I said, go ahead, sweetheart. You know, you find the recipe, and I'll help you make it. And she did. So she found this video of, of how to make an American flag cake. And so we watched that video over and over. I wrote down the notes, got the recipes for the icing and for the cake. Then we went to Kroger, and we got all the ingredients. And I was feeling good about myself. Oh, I'm, I'm a good dad. I helped my daughter make this cake. And I said, this is going to be easy, too. I guess follow the recipe. Watch the video. Well, four hours and later, four hours plus later, I realized this is not easy. But you know, we get so far into something, you can't come back. <laughs> so I was too far in. We just had to press through. Now, we finished it. The cake turned out okay, and everyone ate it up. We didn't bring any back, but it took time. You see, discipleship making is like making a cake from scratch, not from a box. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes following the process. It takes following the recipe. For Jesus' disciples aren't made from a box, not made from following a program or some spiritual gimmick. They're homemade. They're made from scratch. And it takes time. It takes patience. And we, gotta be, we, gotta, we have to accept that. We have to follow the recipe that Jesus lays out for us in Matthew 28. And there are three ingredients. Three ingredients that Jesus gives us here. All three are necessary. If you take one out, then it's not going to work. I read an article this week entitled, Ten Things to Know About United States Culture. Ten things that, that, that we should know about ourselves. And this article was written for people who are visiting the United States. So if you're visiting the United States, there are ten things you need to know about American culture. It says independence. Americans love their independence. We, we love our freedom. It says we love sports, we love competition, and there's diversity. Guess what was first on the list? What do you think? It's something the writer calls to-go concept, that Americans are always on the go. He says most Americans are always on the go. They run from one apartment to the next. They go from work to home, picking up kids, running errands, doing business and social meetings. They were always on the go. So look back over your week. Were you always on the go? Yes, Pastor, I was on the go. I would energize a bunny all week. You're on the go, you're on the go, you're on the go. Well, I hate to put one more thing on your plate, but I got to. Again, hey, don't hate me. Preaching the word. So if you're mad, go talk to Jesus. He wants his disciples to be on the go as well. Go is the first ingredient in his process of us making disciples. He tells it as he says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. You must, we must go and make. And to go and make are connected. But however, to go and make disciples isn't like playing Pokemon Go on your smartphone. I can't download an app called Disciples Go that's going to lead me to various locations over Huntsville where I'm going to find these imaginary disciples and I'm going to throw these little red gospel balls at them, and all of a sudden they're going to become believers. 
That's not how we make disciples. That's not how they are made. To go and make disciples means you must be present with people. You must be with them. And you can't make disciples of all nations if you don't go to the nations. Jesus doesn't say, let the nations come to us and we make disciples. He doesn't say, let the lost come to church and we make disciples. He says, we are to go to them. Go to the lost. Go to their world. Go to their culture. Go to their places. Go to their turf. Go to their neighborhood. Where does Jesus have you at this moment? Look at your life. Where do you live? Where do you play? Where do you shop? Where do you go to school? And wherever those places are, Jesus wants you to go there and make disciples. All we've got to do is think about our life differently. doesn't mean we've got to pick up and move overseas to make disciples. You can make disciples right here in Huntsville if you want to. Our view, I know what you're asking and thinking. How can we make disciples of people if they haven't come to faith in Christ? How can we do that? If someone's not a believer, how in the world can I make them a disciple? You see, our view of discipleship has to be expanded. We tend to think Christian discipleship is for people who have already come to faith. But Jesus' disciple-making process is much more inclusive. Again, my friend Carl Ellis says, discipleship happens in pre-conversion and post-conversion. Pre-conversion and post-conversion. The church tends to focus on post-conversion discipleship. This is what I do when a person's already a believer. But we have to engage in pre-conversion discipleship with people. And you do that when you go to them. When you go and be with them in their world, in their struggles, in their brokenness, in their success, in their ups and downs. We must do both. But do we? Deal with pre-conversion discipleship. Will you go to your neighbors, to your co-workers, to your classmates when you get back to school next week, to your family members who don't know Christ? Will you go to your friends? Will you go to people who are different than you? Will you go to them and and live in their world? Discipleship, whether it's pre-conversion or post-conversion, is life on life. You have to be with people. You can't be with everybody. But you can be with some people. There are some people in your life that that don't know Jesus. And will you be there for them? Walk with them. The last two ingredients that he talks about is baptism and and the word. Look at verse 19 and 26. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations by means of baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Disciples are, are baptized into one name, not into three names. Through one name, they are baptized in the name of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. These three are one God, same in substance, equal in power and glory. And when it comes to the word, he said, they must teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Disciples have to be taught to observe the, the word, to submit to it. They must be taught how to study the Bible, how to read the Bible, how to memorize the Bible. I'm in the process of teach, teaching my son how to ride his bicycle without training wheels. Now, I didn't take the training wheels off and said, all right, son, go figure it out. I'm going to sit here and drink some Kool-Aid and, and you figure it out. Oh, I didn't tell him that. I'm with him. I'm holding up the bicycle and helping him. I didn't just send him off by himself. 
And so that means that when it comes to discipleship making, we have to be able to walk with people. Young believers especially need someone to walk with them through the scriptures, walk with them through life. If you are a mature believer in this church or the church that you attend, who are you walking with when it comes to discipleship? Who are you walking with to help them learn what it means to be a disciple of Christ? It could be our kids. It could be our neighbor. It could be somebody. Each of us can walk with somebody. Even if you're in high school, you have friends that know Jesus. You can walk with them. If you're in middle school and you're a Christian, you have folks in your school who don't know Jesus. You can walk with them if you have that intent in mind. See, Village Church, we make disciples. We must go, baptize, and teach them. We need to do all three of these. And when we go out, Christ doesn't send us out alone. He doesn't send us out in, in, in our own strength. Because there's bookends to this great commission that he gives us. Two bookends that he gives us. And he's with us in two ways as we go out and fulfill this great commission. The first one, he's with us as our king. When he says, I have all authority, he's talking about his kingship. And he's with us because we're under that kingship. We operate under that as believers. He's also with us as our priest as well. Your priest. And that's what he says here in verse 20 when he says, Behold, I'm with you always. Only to the end of the age. So please know that you may operate under Jesus' authority, but he's also your priest. He's helping you as you walk through those things, as you struggle through those things, as you persevere through those things. Because guess what? Discipleship making isn't going to be an easy process. There are things working against us. Things that, that don't want you to make disciples of all nations, and that is the enemy. And so if you engage in gospel ministry, if you engage in, in ministries in this community, please know the enemy will work against you. And to my friends at the link, the enemy will work against y'all this year. Because he don't want you to make disciples of these kids. He doesn't want you to do that. And he's going to do whatever he can do to work against you. But when, you, when he does, know what Jesus says, I'm with you. I'm with you. And he who lives in you is greater than he who lives in the world. And so as we go out, we stand on those promises that God is going to fulfill what he is doing. He's going to use us. We don't need it, but he will use us. Because in the end, we win. In the end, the church wins. So just know that as God's people, you have God's spirit living in you. And he will give you what you need when it comes to making disciples or the people that he brings into your life. Amen? Amen. All right, let us pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you are with us and before us. And I thank you that when it comes to this great commission, it's not dependent upon us. It's dependent upon the God who is faithful, the God who raises up people to do the things he needs to get done. And so I do thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the link. I pray for them and their kids and their families that they will have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful year this year. And that I pray for each of the kids that you will bless them and watch over them. They will have good years in school. And I pray you give them favor. And I pray for all of this in Christ's name. Amen.